Good evening and welcome to the Retro Chat Podcast. My name is Andy Evans coming to you live on a Tuesday at seven o'clock UK. How is everybody doing? Hope you're all good. Uh, did you have a good Easter bank holiday? Hope you did. Uh, what beautiful weather that we had uh, from Good Friday right the way through to yesterday. Well, here in, in Weymouth, uh, it was amazing. We were down the beach, you know, taking care of the sun. Absolutely tremendous. But wherever you were, I hope you had fun. Hope it was a good weekend uh welcome to the show uh back solo again this week uh my thanks to Bericles to paul barrow for last week talking about wwe backlash 2004 of course mick foley has now gone on record saying the match against randy orton the hardcore match was in his mind the greatest match in his career so we covered it if you want to know more about what paul and i thought about backlash check it out in the archives of last week's show either on podcast or uh on here on youtube along with the rest of the mos network so let's go through what's happening coming up at eight o'clock tonight directly after us is ministry of horror with tez uh they've got some great stuff planned for that show um then Bi-weekly on a Tuesday, it's the turn of years available on the MOS network feed on the Ministry of Slam podcast feed. And of course, every Sunday, it's the Ministry of Slam. Sundays at seven o'clock live on the MOS network. Of course, they have also just released the full interview with Eric Young that they took they did a couple of weeks ago in London in person. So check that out on the YouTube feed and on the audio feed. And Maybe you can find out what its favorite biscuit is. It's a good one. You're going to enjoy it. Chat room is open throughout the entire night tonight. Uh, Shane Paul's already in the chat room saying, hi, Andy. Hi, Shane. How you doing? I hope you are all good. If you want to be involved throughout the show, you can be. The chat room is live. If you're watching us on YouTube or if you're watching us on Twitch uh, or Twitter, wherever you're watching us, there's plenty of different options. You can watch us on youtube.com forward slash the MOS network, YouTube forward slash retro chat podcast UK, twitch.tv slash the MOS network, or you can watch us on Twitter and on Facebook at the MOS network as well. Right, let's do it. Let's get into doing what we were talking about. And that is the center seat. If you've ever seen a show on Netflix called The Toys That Made Us or The Movies That Made Us, you kind of know what you're in for because the center seat is produced by Nacelle Productions and it's a 10-part documentary series which basically covers the entire history of Trek, 55 years of Star Trek, narrated by the wonderful Gates McFadden, of course, uh, who played Dr. Beverly Crusher in the Next Generation series. And as we just found out a few weeks ago, uh, will be reprising the role um, in Star Trek Picard in the upcoming season three. So this is a series which is basically detailing everything that you may or may not know about Star Trek. And, you know, I've been a Star Trek fan now for <clears throat> too long. And I've said it before, either on Two Men or, or here on the Retro Chat podcast or on uh, the old Ministry of the Old Squared Circle or what, any other show that I was on that I got introduced to Star Trek via my dad. And I remember watching it on a, a Wednesday night uh, at 6 p.m. on BBC Two. And the first thing that I ever saw was The Next Generation, an encounter at Farpoint. And since that point, 
I've really grown to become a massive Trekkie, if you will. You know, I haven't missed an episode. Uh, I'm not one of these that are, you know, uh, pooing over the new, uh, the new Trek, Discovery or Picard. Yeah, Discovery's got problems. Picard is, is a good show. But classic Trek, the Berman era Trek, as it's referred to in this documentary, is really where my love for the show came from. And um, what's fascinating in this documentary is seeing the stars that I know talk candidly about the actual documentary itself. Now, don't get me wrong. If you are a diehard trackie, some of the information in here you will already know. But others you didn't. I mean, let's take Voyager, for example, okay? So Star Trek Voyager was the second to last show released in the Berman era. It was known for being cutting edge. It was diverse because it had Catherine Janeway or Kate Mulgrew as the captain of Voyager, the first female woman captain in Star Trek history. It was also known for Jennifer Lynn just leaving the show. But it was never really made public about why she left. And this documentary went into detail on that. It went into detail about her struggles with mental health. Jerry Taylor, who was the executive VP and co-creator of Voyager, goes on record to state that she tried to help her and it didn't work. They then replaced her with Jerry Ryan, of course, who, who portrayed Seven of Nine. They then go into detail about how Jerry and Kate Mulgrew really couldn't stand each other, how Kate was jealous of Jerry coming in. The limelight was going to be coming away from Kate. It was going to be going to Jerry. And Jerry even says in the show, I don't look on it fondly. You've heard about these feuds. But this is the first time in recent memory that they've gone on record and started talking about them. The 10 parts of the actual documentary are split into various different categories. So episode one looks at the TOS, the original series. It looks in detail at Jean's career. It looks in detail at how Lucy from I Love Lucy fame saved the franchise, gave it that shot, gave it the opportunity to go out there and be on TV. It talks in detail about the casting process how a lot of the cast had actually already worked with Gene Roddenberry on The Lieutenant. It talks about the three seasons. It talks about some of their biggest episodes, some of the creative challenges. Episode two is about the animated series, a property which, in fairness, has always been overlooked. And it was a great series made by Filmation, uh, the guys who did He-Man and Fundar the Barbarian and the Groovy Ghoulies and the real Ghostbusters. Uh, the Ghostbusters, not the real Ghostbusters. It was overlooked. It was a great show. The third episode goes into detail on the movies, featuring interviews with the, with the likes of Nicholas Mayer, the graphical designers, the writers, Rick Berman, the cast. Notable exceptions. Uh, Bill Shatner does not appear. Uh, Leonard obviously passed away a number of years ago. Walter Koenig is featured very heavily. Then you move into the TNG era, the next generation era, the era which I'm more familiar about. And again, it talks about the casting. It talks about the problems of the uniforms. But it also 
talks about something which I never realized. And that was the issue between Gene and his lawyer. All right. See, the lawyer, who I cannot remember his name right now, <laughs> um, trying to take over. He tried to make it out as though he was the one that really ran the show. And it was thanks to the Writers Guild and someone reporting him to the Writers Guild that he actually got fired from the Paramount lot. It talks about Maurice Hurley coming in in season two as the storyteller, the, the executive producer. It talks about how Gates McFadden got fired from The Next Generation and how it was Patrick Stewart, the Lord Almighty, who contacted Gates and begged her to return to season three. You then move to Deep Space Nine, the show which, it, honestly, if you look at it now, is possibly the best Star Trek series out of the Berman era. Maybe he's going as far as the best Star Trek series, but it didn't start off like that. It was hated by the fans. If you've ever seen the documentary What We Leave Behind, which was the Iris Stephen Bear documentary that they released a couple of years ago, you will know about how the cast felt about the fan reaction to Deep Space Nine. You will know that the crowd felt utterly distraught at being, well, hated. Why was it a Star Trek show not on a ship? <laughs> how can it be called a trek through the stars? when they are on a static space station left by the Cardassians that's a lot darker than what we know from the Enterprise and the next generation. And we go for a wormhole and a runabout. But what you see in that Deep Space Nine documentary is a journey from hatred to fan love. And it's thanks to Ira Stephen Bear, and they talk about that because it's thanks to Ira basically going, Screw the rules. I'm doing what I want to do. And he serialized Deep Space Nine. Rick Berman, Michael Piller, Jerry Taylor, they went off to create Voyager. That left Ira alone to produce three fantastic years of TV, seasons five, six, and seven. The Jemadar, the Dominion War. Because that was the original pitch for Deep Space Nine, to be serialized. But because of syndication, the executives at Paramount Pictures didn't want that to happen. They said, you can't just pop in and watch an episode about the war on a Tuesday evening at five o'clock. And then the next night, watch one called Duet. It doesn't work. But Ira was passionate. Because Ira said, you are a diehard fan. You are going to find it. And now in this era of streaming, of Netflix, of Paramount Plus, of Disney, of Peacock, whatever the service, it's opened it up to a whole new audience. And they talk about that in the documentary. And you can see how relieved the cast are that finally they're being appreciated. It then takes a step away. And it talks about the ships, the various different starships like the Enterprise, like the Defiant. How were they designed? How were they created? What's the process 
Michael Westmore, the makeup artist for Star Trek. Michael and Denise Okuda, the husband and wife team, who are responsible for a lot of what we call the L-cars, the on-screen displays and the graphics that you would have seen in the Berman era, are prevalent in this episode. And it's different because, again, as I said earlier, this is bits that you don't necessarily know are going to happen or how they happened or how they developed. We then move into Voyager. And as I said earlier on, the two stories that they touch on, amongst other things, is a relationship between Jerry Ryan and Kate Mulgrew and, of course, Jennifer Leon disappearing from the show. But the other thing that they touch on, again, is how disappointed the cast were because on their last day of filming they were pulling the sets down and turning them into enterprise the cast never got to really say goodbye to the sets tim ross who plays tuvok on Voyager actually stated that you know we were filming our exit scene we were filming the scene where we were going home and the observation lounge was being pulled. The mess hall was being pulled down. It's basically, you're done. Ta-ta. See you later. You're done. You're out of here. And it kind of left a sour taste in all of their mouths. And then we get the show, the next episode, that really, I think, hurt Trek. And not because it was a bad show, but because it was basically done because they had to give UPN, the fledgling network, an opportunity to grow. And that was Enterprise. The final show in the Berman era. The show that was the prequel to everything and really should have been amazing. Why? Because it had the entire Trek catalog of characters, of species, of canon to draw from but enterprise couldn't find its identity enterprise was badly written it was even badly produced it goes as far as to turn around and say the theme song by russell watson was just not there and i think that's a shame because when you consider everything that the enterprise crew did for four years this one could have gone for seven. One of the key stories that they talk about on Enterprise is the fact that Jolene Blaylock, in fact, Dominic Keating, who's just on screen a moment ago, Jolene Blaylock hadn't really ever learned how to act. And she had an acting coach on set. And at the end of every scene, they would go away and assess how she performed. But she did quickly get a hold of the character. Scott Bakula, the most prominent hiring of a Star Trek captain in history, came off a hugely popular and successful Quantum Leap series, was the biggest catch you could have got. But he took the character direction in a completely different way. Instead of giving it the action that they wanted from a William Shatner clone, he cut him and talked at a slower speed and drew out the action monologue that they wanted which meant that they had to cut a lot of scenes on script what it also does is it talks about really the fact that enterprise was doomed 
right from the beginning. Because at the end of season three, Brandon Braga, Rick Berman, the two executive producers, the two writers, if you will, of the show, moved on. Part of that was because Paramount had been taken over by CBS, and it was now CBS TV. What that meant was a whole new management team were coming in. They didn't appreciate Star Trek. They didn't want Star Trek on the network. Now, there are things in Enterprise that really didn't work. I mean, continuity-wise, why would you introduce the Borg on Earth? That didn't work, right? The Borg was, um, as uh, Shane's put, oh, Enterprise has many of my favorite track episodes on there, and mine as well. But Enterprise or the Borg, they weren't discovered until season two of The Next Generation. We had never seen the Borg before, but yet Star Trek history, Star Trek record would say they did. So continuity like that was terrible. They changed the fortunes of Enterprise in season three by doing the Expanse storyline and the creation of the Zindi. Again, a tremendous change in the way they produced television. But it was season four, the final series, which was a cliffhanger at the end of season three because they went back in time and found an alternative universe. Yes, I know. Alternative time travel in Star Trek. Believe it or not, it does happen. Where World War II had been won by the Nazis and the Nazis had taken over the world. And that last scene was of an alien appearing. So obviously the aliens have gone back in time, helped the Nazis win the world war. Now the premise, and I never knew this, but the premise was for the entire of season four to be based in second world war era. And Manny Koto, the executive producer at that time, the guy who took over a hardcore Star Trek fan went, I don't want to do this. I don't want to write a show purely in world war two. So Manny Cotto took it back to basics. He went back and he said, right, let's go back into track history. Let's start looking at the characters that we knew from the original series. Let's start bringing the action back. And one of the things he did in the mirror darkly, the two-parter, where they changed everything about Enterprise. It gave the cast a chance to play the darker versions of themselves. Had a whole new opening sequence with new music. And we'll talk about that in a second. And it goes on record as being one of the top Enterprise episodes in the history of the series. Because it was dark. It was old school storytelling. It linked it back to the original series. They had five episodes left of season four. And they got the news that season five wasn't going to happen. Yeah, that's a hard pill to swallow, right? You think you're signing on for a seven-year journey, just like the other series, but you're going to end on four. Scott Bakula wasn't overly pleased with that decision. The worst decision and what really pissed Scott Bakula off was the fact that they turned the last episode, These Are the Voyages, into a Next Generation episode. And they openly talk about this. They openly talk about their disgust at how that happened. They talk about 
what was our show? Was it a holodeck simulation the entire time? And they asked the question about why did Berman and Braga do that? Well, basically, they did it because they were wrapping up the entire Berman verse. The Berman era track. It was over. It was done. CBS wanted it gone. They wanted it younger. They wanted it hip. They wanted a boy band to appear in the mess hall and perform. I mean, how could you bring someone like NSYNC into the, into the 22nd century? It just wasn't going to happen. One of the most poignant stories in the whole documentary is actually Dominic Keating, um, who I've met a few times. And if you stay tuned to the YouTube channel, we will put, we're going to put an excerpt up of an interview that I did with Dominic Keating a couple of years ago, where he talks about his time on Enterprise. And we'll put that up on the YouTube in a couple of days. Um, and he talked about how he lost his mother in the second season. And it's a really an emotional story because he does genuinely break down. But what happens is he says it was because of the family. It was because of the Enterprise crew. The last episode of the entire documentary series quite possibly is my favorite one. And I'll tell you the reason why, okay? It was the last episode that featured on guest stars. And the reason for that is because we heard from stars who really don't often appear at track conventions. But it was also an opportunity to hear from people such as Nana Visitor, Chase Masterson, Robert Picardo, John Billingsley, Scott McDonald, Andrew Robinson, who plays Garrick, Jonathan Frakes, Kate McFadden, talking about how many times did they audition? Jonathan Frakes auditioned seven times for the role of Riker. It talks about how you could not take anything from set do you think you can ad lib on star trek absolutely not you read the lines verbatim so you know you might sit and watch the documentary and, and like i said earlier you might sit there and go do you know what i knew this i knew this i knew this yes you might but you're hearing it in a different way and this isn't going to be the end of it right because the Nacelle Corporation, the company, want it to continue. And I hope it does, right? If you want to catch more about the center seat, one of the best ways to do that is to grab the podcast. It's called the Center Seat After Show, and it's hosted by Bob Weiss. And it has uh, frequent convention guests and Star Trek historians. John and Maria Jose Tenuto. And they go into long form about some of the topics on the show. Uh, one of the biggest ones to listen to is from Generations director David Carson and David Livingston, who is the a recurring Trek director and producer, and also writer and producer Brannon Bragger. Check it out, check them out, get them on podcasts, or you can even watch them on YouTube uh, just by looking for them in the Cell Corporation. So really, if you like the toys that made us, if you like the movies that made us, if you like Star Trek, you're in for the same. They haven't spared an expense. 
they went to town. The narration by Gates McFadden is hugely entertaining. She puts her own spin on it. But ultimately, what you get from this is honest portrayal and an honest account of actors' journeys on a franchise that means a lot to everybody. It's interesting when you hear actors who say, I've never watched an episode of Trek. I did it because it was a seven-year paycheck. To actors who said, I'm diehard. I loved it. I loved the original series. But the one thing that came out of this is whether or not they were a diehard fan or whether or not they were just a, a casual who came in for a payday. By the end of it, they loved their time on the franchise. Center Seat is available to watch right now here in the UK on Amazon Prime Video. It's available on IMDb TV, which is the free video offering, well, before they change the name of it. All 10 parts are there with limited advertisements. Check it out and watch it because you're not going to be disappointed. Even if you're not a Star Trek fan, you will get something out of it. You will enjoy it. If you're a fan of the toys that made us, then you are going to like the show. Okay, now let's give you a, a brief indication of what we're going to be talking about next week before we hit some news. So if you are a fan of a franchise, another franchise, that's been running for over 30 years. A franchise that has spawned three feature films. I think it's 27 different incarnations. A franchise that launched the VR Troopers, that launched Tommy Oliver, Jason David Frank. The next week, we're talking Power Rangers, uh, the entire history, because there has news that's come out about Power Rangers now becoming Netflix. We're going to be touching on that. We're also going to be touching on some of the latest news concerning uh, David Yost as Billy Cranston. So next week here on the Retro Chat, we will be talking about the Power Rangers, the history, the legacy, and the rise and fall. All right, let's give you some news uh, coming out of the world of entertainment at the moment. Now, it has been announced earlier on today uh, as we're recording this on the 19th of April, that the Orville will be coming to an end as of season three. Now, the new season launches in June on Hulu and on Disney Plus internationally. Um, it's been hit. It's been plagued by COVID, right? It's been delayed several times. All of the cast have now been released from their limited contracts. They've gone on to other projects. Seth MacFarlane has signed with CBS. Uh, to develop multiple different shows, including uh, the new TED prequel TV series. So Hulu, the Orville is over uh, as of the end of season three in what many people consider the better show uh, than Star Trek. Don't agree with that. But, you know, there we go. Other news uh, coming out is that CW could spell bad news for the Arrowverse because recent reports suggest that the CW may be cutting its list of DC shows in half with Legends of Tomorrow and Batwoman on the chopping block. We already know that The Flash has been renewed for season nine um, and Superman and Lois has been renewed for season three, but will there be another season of Batwoman? God, I hope not. 
Will there be another season of the uh, Legends of Tomorrow? Again, God, I hope not. Um, <laughs> don't need any more of that in my life. I think, in all seriousness, I think the um, the Arrowverse has had a great run, but it has gone on a bit too long. This past weekend also saw the unveiling of the prequel, the, the next in the Doctor Who saga for Jodie Whittaker, the second to last episode of Jodie before her regeneration, uh, came out to massive success. And we now know that her final showing will be taking place in the autumn and she will be accompanied by two classic companions uh, going back to the previous Doctor Who incarnation. But other news that's coming out is that Jodie Whittaker's replacement on BBC's Doctor Who, and who will also be the 14th iteration of the Doctor, is expected to be announced within the next few weeks. So her replacement may be revealed sooner than later. The BBC have revealed to CBR.com that the new Doctor will be revealed in the coming weeks, though a specific date was not provided. It was also revealed that two former companions, as we said, Tegan and Ace, will return for Whitaker's final episodes as the 13th Doctor. Janet Fielding portrayed the companion Tegan Javanka from 1981 to 1984 for the 4th and the 5th Doctors, played by Tom Baker and Peter Davison. And she says, in some ways, it was a very different experience to what it was like when I finished recording in 83. But in many ways, it was the same. Sophie Aldred played Ace from 87 through to 89 with Sylvester McCoy as the seventh Doctor. And she's also going to return. Jodie Whittaker premiered as the 13th Doctor and the first woman to play the role in 2018. And she and the showrunner Chris Chibnall, who also joined in 2018, announced last year that they would hand over the keys following the series of specials airing in 2022. And we know that Russell T. Davis is back as the new showrunner for this new incarnation of Doctor Who. So what is going to happen? There's rumours abound that David Tennant's coming back. Uh, man, it's going to be interesting. Right, comments in the chat room. Shane Paul, um, Legends is my favourite. Of course, talking about Legends of Tomorrow. Um, the Flash has gone downhill. Yeah, really has. I agree with you totally there. All right. What else have we got on the thing for tonight? The trailer for um, Jurassic World was released earlier this week on YouTube. Uh, a big two-minute documentary really talking about how the combination of the story is coming together featuring sam neill and the original cast and chris pratt and the cast of jurassic world so check that out okay so what's coming up on the mos network this week well joining me at well joining the mos network at eight o'clock tonight is the ministry of horror tez will be back talking all about the uh, the wonderful world of horror because he's got some amazing shows and guests that he's produced over the past few weeks. Let's find out what Tez is talking about in this one. He is going to be talking about the top five unnerving horror with Olus Carpenter. Uh, that's musician and actor Olus Carpenter. Plus the news and reviews 
including uh, i'm sure the book club every other tuesday the tourney is is on the ministry of slam podcast feed uh you can check paul and dave talking about the classic turner wcw it's clash of the champions three uh, i believe is the next one they're going to be talking about and every sunday the flagship show the ministry of slam lee and lawrence talking all about the world of professional wrestling it's going to be a good one let's go to a quick break uh we'll be back in a sec join the mos network the home of the Ministry of Slam Pro Wrestling Show every Sunday at 7 p.m. UK time. We bring you all the latest wrestling news, fun segments, and of course, we bring you classic wrestling interviews from the last 20 years. The only people that really have taken shots at us are, are the people that are really avid WWE fans. We are also the home of the Retro Chat Podcast. Go back in time with Andy Evans every single Wednesday at 7 p.m. UK. And don't forget the Ministry of Horror show with Tez every single Tuesday, where he looks back, brings in special guests, and looks at the history of horror. The MOS Network is an awesome community for wrestling fans, pop culture fans, and people who like positive energy all around the world. Come and make friends with like-minded fans 24-7 in our exclusive Discord community. Gaming and music streams. Come on. Come on yeah, 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 come on. Yeah. And for you audio listeners, we also have the Ministry of Slam on the podcast feeds. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere you check out your audio podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, wrestling wins with the MOS Network. There we go. The MOS Network, not just the home for wrestling entertainment, but the home for entertainment across all of the information superhighway. A couple of things before we finish. Uh, John Wick is the creator who is going to be adapting Sega's Street of Rage. Uh, John Wick creator Derek Kolstad is turning his hand to another action-filled franchise. It's been revealed that he will be adapting the classic video game Streets of Rage into a movie. Deadline reports that Kolstad who brought the popular Keanu Reeves-led John Wick franchise to the big screen, has already written the script for the film, which will be based on the classic retro beat-em-up series on the Mega Drive. For those of you who don't know, Streets of Rage focuses on a group of former police officers turned vigilantes who are trying to rid their city of a crime syndicate that has corrupted the local government. After launching in 1991, the original game spawned three sequels and has been made available on a range of different platforms, with Streets of Rage 4 just being released two years ago. What hasn't been confirmed as yet is whether the movie will follow the plots of the original game or whether the characters from the franchise, such as Axel, Blaze and Adam, will make the transition to the big screen. The adaption will be produced by DJ2 Entertainment, which is behind another recent successful video game adaptation in the form of Sonic the Hedgehog, an escape artist who produced the Equalizer film franchise. The Batman sets box office records, which isn't bad for the third reboot within a decade. The Batman is now officially out on US streaming service HBO Max. So if you are in the States listening to this, then check it out. But it's also a good time to look at how well it's done on the box office so far. The latest big screen alliteration of the Cape Crusader has become the first film of 2022 
surpassed three quarters of a billion dollars at the box office, currently standing at uh, 751,673,000 worldwide at the time of the show tonight. Unsurprisingly, that also makes it the highest grossing film of the year, both globally and domestically in the US. In second place, there is the Chinese epic war film, The Battle at Lake Changjin 2, also known as Water Great Bridge. That made $626 million versus the 751. Speaking about passing the milestone, Warner Brothers president of domestic distribution, Jeff Goldstein, said again via deadline, the incredible response we've seen at theatres across the country is a testament to both the enduring power of the iconic DC superhero and the huge appetite out there to experience great movies on the big screen. We congratulate everyone involved on reaching this impressive milestone. The film hasn't just been a commercial success, it's received a lot of praise too, with UK site Digital Spy giving it five stars in their review, and we also gave it a good eight and a half to nine out of ten when we reviewed it. The Batman stars Robert Pattinson making his debut as the Cape Crusader, Zoe Kravitz, Paul Dano, Jeffrey Wright, and Colin Farrell, and it's already prompted rumours of a sequel. One film that we do know has now been completed, actually ahead of, uh, well, anything else, is Batgirl, uh, because that live-action film has now wrapped. In the Hype star, Leslie Grace revealed the news in an interview with Pop Culture, where she talked about what it was like to don the costume and play Barbara Gordon. She says, we're all wrapped up, and I can't wait for everyone to see the film. It's been confirmed that Michael Keaton will also be returning as Batman or Michael Keaton, Although we don't know how because of the Flash movie. Well, that's just a, yeah, who knows what's happening with the Flash movie. All right, that's it for me. I will be back next week with more of the Retro Chat podcast. Again, talking about Power Rangers. So it's morphing time, everybody. Uh, looking forward to chatting about the history and the legacy of the Power Rangers. Let me know what you remember of the franchise. Uh, your thoughts, your memories. What do you think about it going to Netflix? What do you think about it becoming part of a new canon, a new iteration, uh, all you need to do is either email studio at retrochat.co.uk or tweet us at retrochatpod using the hashtag back in time or join us across social media. But for now, all that's left for me to say is so long, farewell, or feeder saying goodbye. Yeah, that didn't work. Um, I will be back next week with more of the Retro Chat podcast. Until then, stay with us. Uh, Tez will be up at 8 o'clock with Ministry of Horror. Until then, I'll see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye.